Section 4 of The Plain Speaker This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirby Bonds The Plain Speaker Opinions on Books, Men, and Things by William Hazlitt On the Conversation of Authors an author is bound to write well or ill, wisely or foolishly. It is his trade. But I do not see that he is bound to talk any more than he is bound to dance or ride or fence better than other people. Reading, study, silence, thought are a bad introduction to loquacity. It would be sooner learnt of chambermaids and tapsters. He understands the art and mystery of his own profession, which is bookmaking. What right has anyone to expect or require him to do more to make a bow gracefully on entering or leaving a room, to make love charmingly, or to make a fortune at all? In all things there is a division of labor. A lord is no less amorous for writing ridiculous love letters, nor a general less successful for wanting wit and honesty. Why, then, may not a poor author say nothing, and yet pass muster? Set him on the top of a stagecoach. He will make no figure. He is mumchance, while the slang-wit flies about as fast as the dust, with the crack of a whip and the clatter of the horse's heels. Put him in a ring of boxers. He is a poor creature, and of his port as meek as is a maid. Introduce him to a tea-party of Milner's girls, and they are ready to split their sides with laughing at him. Over his bottle he is dry. In the drawing-room, rude or awkward, he is too refined for the vulgar, too clownish for the fashionable. He is one that cannot make a good leg, one that cannot eat a mess of broth cleanly, one that cannot ride a horse without spur-galling, one that cannot salute a woman and look on her directly. In courts, in camps, in town and country, he is a cipher or a butt. He is good for nothing but a laughing-stock or a scarecrow. You can scarcely get a word out of him for love or money. He knows nothing. He has no notion of pleasure or business, or of what he is going on in the world he does not understand cookery unless he is a doctor in divinity nor surgery nor chemistry unless he is a quidnunc nor mechanics nor husbandry and tillage unless he is as great an admirer of tull's husbandry and has profited as much by it as the philosopher of botley no nor music painting the drama nor the fine arts in general what the deuce is it, then, my good sir, that he does understand, or know anything about? Books! Vens! Books! What books? Not receipt books, Madonna, nor account books, nor books of pharmacy, or the veterinary art. They belong to their respective callings and handicrafts, but books of liberal taste and general knowledge. What do you mean by that general knowledge, which implies not a knowledge of things in general, but an ignorance, by your own account, 
of every one in particular, or by that liberal taste which scorns the pursuits and acquirements of the rest of the world in succession, and is confined exclusively, by way of excellence, to what nobody takes an interest in but yourself, and a few idlers like yourself. Is this what the critics mean by belles and the study of humanity? Book knowledge in a word, then, is knowledge communicable by books. It is general and liberal for this reason, that it is intelligible and interesting on the bare suggestion, that to which anyone feels a romantic attachment merely from finding it in a book must be interesting in itself that which he consistently forms a lively and entire conception of from seeing a few marks and scratches upon paper must be taken from the common nature that which the first time you meet with it seizes upon the attention of a curious speculation must exercise the general faculties of the human mind there are certain broader aspects of society and views of things common to every subject and more or less cognizable to every mind and these the scholar treats and founds his claims to general attention upon them without being chargeable with pedantry the minute descriptions of fishing tackle of baits and flies and walton's complete angler make that work a great favorite with sportsmen the alloy of an amiable luminanti and the modest but touching descriptions of familiar incidents and rural objects scattered through it have made it an equal favorite with every reader of taste and feeling montaigne's essays dilworth's spelling book and fern's treatise on continent remainders are all equally books but not equally adapted for all classes of readers the last two are of no use but to schoolmasters and lawyers but the first is a work we may recommend to anyone to read who has ever thought at all, or who would learn to think justly on any subject. Persons of different trades and professions, the mechanic, the shopkeeper, the medical practitioner, the artist, etc., may have great knowledge and ingenuity in their several vocations, the details of which will be very edifying to themselves, and just as incomprehensible to their neighbors. But over and above this professional and technical knowledge, they must be supposed to have a stock of common sense and common feelings to furnish subjects for common conversation, or to give them any pleasure in each other's company. It is to this common stock of ideas, spread over the surface or striking its roots into the very center of society, that the popular writer appeals, and not in vain, for he finds readers. It is of this finer essence of wisdom and humanity, ethereal mold, sky-tinctured, that books of the better sort are made. They contain the language of thought. It must happen that in the course of time, and the variety of human capacity, some persons will have struck out finer observations, reflections, and sentiments than others. These they have committed to books of memory, have bequeathed as a lasting legacy to posterity, and such persons have become standard authors. We visit at the shrine, drink in some measure of the inspiration, 
and cannot easily breed in another air less pure accustomed to immortal fruits are we to be blamed for this because the vulgar and illiterate do not always understand us the fault is rather in them who are confined and cabined in each in their own particular sphere and compartment of ideas and have not the same refined medium of communication or abstracted topics of discourse bring a number of literary or of illiterate persons together perfect strangers to each other and see which party will make the best company verily we have our reward we have made our election and have no reason to repent it if we were wise but the misfortune is we wish to have all the advantages on one side we grudge and cannot reconcile it to ourselves that any one should go about to cozen fortune without the stamp of learning we think because we are scholars there shall be no more cakes and ale we do not know how to account for it that barmaids should gossip or ladies whisper or bullies roar or fools laugh or knaves thrive without having gone through the same course of select study that we have this vanity is preposterous and carries its own punishment with it books are a world in themselves it is true but they are not the only world the world itself is a volume much larger than all the libraries in it learning is a sacred deposit from the experience of ages but it has not put all future experiences on the shelf nor debarred the common herd of mankind from the use of their hands tongues eyes ears or understandings taste is a luxury for the privileged few but it would be hard upon those who have not the same standard of refinement in their own minds that we suppose ourselves to have if this should prevent them from having recourse as usual to their old frolics coarse jokes and horse-play and getting through the wear and tear of the world with such homely sayings and shrewd helps as they may happy it is that the mass of mankind eat and drink and sleep and perform their several tasks and do as they like without caring nothing for our scribblings our carpings and our quibbles and moving on the same in spite of our fine-spun distinctions fantastic theories and lines of demarcation which are like chalk figures drawn on ballroom floors to be danced out before morning in the field opposite the window where i write this there is a country girl picking stones in the one next it there are several poor women weeding the blue and red flowers from the corn farther on are two boys tending a flock of sheep what do they know or care about what i am writing about them or ever will or what would they be better for it if they did or why need we despise the wretched slave who like a lackey from the rise to the set sweats in the eyes of phoebus and all night sleeps in Elysium? next day after dawn doth writhe and help Epirion to his horse and follows so the ever-running year with profitable labor to his grave is not this life as sweet as writing ephemides but we put that which flutters the brain idly for a moment and then is heard no more in competition with nature 
which exists everywhere and lasts always we not only underrate the force of nature but make too much of art but we also overrate our own accomplishments and advantages derived from art in the presence of clownish ignorance or of persons without any great pretensions real or affected we are very much inclined to take upon ourselves as the virtual representation of science art and literature we have a strong itch to show off and do the honors of civilization for all the great men whose works we have ever read and whose names our auditors have never heard of as noblemen's lackeys in the presence of their master give themselves airs of superiority over everyone else but though we have read congreve a stage-coachman may be an overmatch for us in wit though we are deep versed in the excellence of shakespeare's colloquial style a village beldam may outscold us though we have read machiavel in the original italian we may be easily outwitted by a clown and though we have cried our eyes out over the new eloise a poor shepherd lad who hardly knows how to spell his own name may tell his tale under the hawthorn in the dale and prove a more thriving wooer what then is the advantage we possess over the meanest of the mean why this that we have read congreve shakespeare machiavel and the new eloise not that we are to have their wit genius shrewdness or melting tenderness from speculative pursuits we must be satisfied with speculative benefits from reading too we learn to write if we have had the pleasure of studying the highest models of perfection in their kind and can hope to leave anything ourselves however slight to be looked upon as a model or even a good copy in its way we may think ourselves pretty well off without engrossing all the privileges of learning and all the blessings of ignorance into the bargain it has been made a question whether there have not been individuals in common life of greater talents and powers of mind than the most celebrated writers whether for instance such or such a liverpool merchant or manchester manufacturer was not a more sensible man than montaigne of a longer reach of understanding than the viscount of st albans there is no saying unless some of these illustrious obscure had communicated their important discoveries to the world but then they would have been authors on the other hand there is a set of critics who fall into the contrary error and suppose that unless the proof of capacity is laid before all the world the capacity itself cannot exist looking upon all those who have not commenced authors as literally stocks and stones and worse than senseless things i remember trying to convince a person of this class that a young lady whom he knew nothing of the niece of a celebrated authoress had just the same sort of fine tact and ironical turn in conversation that her relative had shown in her writings when young the only answer i could get was an incredulous smile and the observation that when she wrote anything as good as evelina or cecilia she might think herself as clever i said all i meant was that she had the same family talents 
and asked whether he thought that if Miss Burney had not been very clever as a mere girl before she wrote her novels, she would ever have written them? It was all in vain. He still stuck to his written text, and was convinced that the niece was a little fool compared to her aunt at the same age, and if he had known the aunt formerly, he would have had just the same opinion of her. My friend was one of those who have a settled persuasion that it is the book that makes the author, and not the author the book. That's a strange opinion for a great philosopher to hold, but he willfully shuts his eyes to the germs and indistinct workings of genius, and treats them with supercilious indifference, till they stare him in the face through the press, and then take cognizance only of the overt acts and published evidence. This is neither a proof of wisdom nor the way to be wise. It is partly pedantry and prejudice, and partly feebleness of judgment and want of magnanimity. He dare as little commit himself on the character of books as of individuals, till they are stamped by the public. If you show him any work for his approbation, he asks, whose is the subscription? He judges of genius by its shadow, reputation of the metal by the coin. He is just the reverse of another person whom I know, for, as Godwin never allows a particle of merit to any one, till it is acknowledged by the whole world, Coleridge withholds his tribute of applause from every person in whom any mortal but himself can decry the least glimpse of understanding. He would be thought to look farther into a millstone than anybody else. He would have others see with his eyes and take their opinions from him on trust in spite of their senses. The more obscure and defective the indications of merit, the greater his sagacity and candor in being the first to point them out. He looks upon what he nicknames a man of genius, but as the breath of his nostrils and the clay in the potter's hands. If any such inert, unconscious mass tender the fostering care of the modern Prometheus, is kindled into life, begins to see, speak, and move so as to attract the notice of other people, our jealous patronizer of latent worth in that case deserts his intellectual offspring from the moment they can go alone and shift for themselves. But to pass on to our more immediate subject, the conversation of authors is not so good as might be imagined, but such as it is, with rare exceptions, it is better than any other, the proof of which is that when you are used to it, you cannot put up with any other. That of mixed company becomes utterly intolerable. You cannot sit out a common tea and card party, at least, if they pretend to talk at all. You are obliged in despair to cut all your old acquaintances who are not au fait on the prevailing and most smartly contested topics, who are not imbued with the high gusto of criticism and virtue. You cannot bear to hear a friend whom you have not seen for many years tell you how much yard he sells his laces and tapes, and when he means to move into his next house, when he heard last from his relations in the country, 
whether trade is alive or dead, or whether Mr. Such a One gets to look old, this sort of neighborly gossip will not go down after the high-raised tone of literary conversation. The last may be absurd, very unsatisfactory, and full of turbulence and heartburning, but it has a zest in it which more ordinary topics of news or family affairs do not supply. Neither will the conversation of what we understand by gentlemen of men of fashion do after that of men of letters. It is flat, insipid, stale, and unprofitable in comparison. They talk much about the same things. Pictures, poetry, politics, plays, but they do it worse and at a sort of vapid second hand. They in fact talk out of newspapers and magazines what ice write there. They do not feel the same interest in subjects they affect to handle with an air of fashionable condescension, nor have they the same knowledge of them, if they were ever so much in earnest in displaying it. If it were not for the wine and dessert, no author in his senses would accept an invitation to a well-dressed dinner party, except out of pure good nature and unwillingness to disoblige by his refusal. Persons in high life talk most entirely by rote. There are certain established modes of address and certain answers to them, expected as a matter of course, as a point of etiquette. The studied forms of politeness do not give the greatest possible scope to an exuberance of wit and fancy. The fear of giving offense destroys sincerity and without sincerity there can be no true enjoyment of society, nor unfettered exertion of intellectual activity. Those who have been accustomed to live with the great are hardly considered as conversable persons in literary society. They are not to be talked with any more than puppets or echoes. They have no opinions but what will please, and you naturally turn away as a waste of time and words from attending to a person who just before assented to what you said, and whom you find the moment after, from something that unexpectedly or perhaps by design drops from him, to be of a totally different way of thinking. This bush-fighting is not regarded as fair play among scientific men. As fashionable conversation is a sacrifice to politeness, so the conversation of a low life is nothing but rudeness. They contradict you without giving a reason, or, if they do, is a very bad one. Swear, talk loud, repeat the same thing fifty times over, get to calling names, and from words proceed to blows. You cannot make companions of servants, or persons in an inferior station of life. You may talk to them on matters of business, and what they have to do for you, as lords talk to bruisers on subjects of fancy, or country squires to their grooms on horse-racing, but out of that narrow sphere, to any general topic, you cannot lead them. The conversation soon flags, and you go back to the old questions, or are obliged to break up the sitting for want of ideas in common. The conversation of authors is better than that of most professions. It is better than that of lawyers, who talk nothing but double entendre, 
than that of physicians who talk of the approaching deaths of college, or the marriage of some new practitioner with some rich widow, than that of the divines, who talk of the last place they dined, than that of the university men, who make stale puns, repeat the refuse of London newspapers, and affect an ignorance of Greek and mathematics. It is better than that of players, who talk of nothing but the green room, and rehearse the scholar, the wit, or the fine gentleman, like a part of the stage, or that of the ladies, who, whatever you talk of, think of nothing, and expect you to think of nothing but themselves. It is not easy to keep up a conversation with women in company. It is thought to be a piece of rudeness to differ from them. It is not quite fair to ask them a reason for what they say. You are afraid of pressing too hard upon them. But where you cannot differ openly and unreservedly, you cannot heartily agree. It is not so in France. There the women talk of things in general, and reason better than the men in this country. They are mistresses of the intellectual foils. They are adepts in all the topics. They know what is to be said for and against all sorts of questions, and are lively and full of mischief into the bargain. They are very subtle. They put you to your trumps immediately. Your logic is more in requisition even than your gallantry. You must argue as well as bow yourself into the good graces of these modern Amazons. What a situation for an Englishman to be placed in! The fault of literary conversation, in general, is its too great tenaciousness. It fastens upon a subject, and will not let it go. It resembles a battle rather than a skirmish, and makes a toil of a pleasure. Perhaps it does this from necessity, from a consciousness of wanting the more familiar graces, the power to sport and trifle, to touch lightly and adorn agreeably. Every view or turn of a question in passant as it arises. Those who have a reputation to lose are too ambitious of shining to please. To excel in conversation, said an ingenious man, one must not always be striving to say good things. To say one good thing, one must say many bad and more indifferent. The topics of metaphysical argument, having got into female society in France, is a proof how much they must have been discussed there generally, and how unfounded the charge is which we bring against them of excessive thoughtlessness and frivolity. The French, taken altogether, are a more sensible, reflecting, and better informed people than the English ones. This desire to shine without the means at hand often makes men silent. The fear of being silent strikes us dumb. A writer, who has been accustomed to take a connected view of a difficult question and to work it out gradually in all its bearings, may be very deficient in that quickness and ease which men of the world, who are in the habit of hearing a variety of opinions, who pick up an observation on one subject and another on another, and who care none about any farther than the passing away of an idle hour, usually acquire. An author has studied a particular point he has read. He has inquired. He has thought a great deal upon it. He is not contented to take it up casually in common with others, to throw out a hint, to propose an objection. He will either remain silent, uneasily and dissatisfied, 
or he will begin at the beginning and go through it to the end. He is for taking the whole responsibility upon himself. He would be thought to understand the subject better than others, or indeed would show that nobody else knows anything about it. There are always three or four points on which the literary novice, at his first outset in life, fancies he can enlighten every company and bear down all opposition. But he is cured of this quixotic and pugnacious spirit as he goes more into the world, where he finds that there are other opinions and other pretensions to be adjusted besides his own. When this asperity wears off, and a certain scholastic precocity is mellowed down, the conversation of men of letters becomes more interesting and instructive. Men of the world have no fixed principles, no groundwork of thought. Mere scholars have too much an object, a theory always in view, to which they rest everything, and not unfrequently common sense itself. By mixing with society, they rub off their hardness of manner and impractical offensive singularity, while they retain a greater depth and coherence of understanding. There is more to be learnt from them than from their books. This was a remark of Usso's, and it is a very true one. In the confidence and unreserve of private intercourse, they are more at liberty to say what they think, to put the subject in different and opposite points of view, to illustrate it more briefly and pithily by familiar expression, by an appeal to individual character and personal knowledge, to bring in the limitation, to obviate misconception, to state difficulties on their own side of the argument, and answer them as well as they can. This would hardly agree with the prudery and somewhat ostentatious claims of authorship. Dr. Johnson's conversation in Boswell's life is much better than his published works, and the fragments of the opinions of celebrated men, preserved in their letters or in anecdotes of them, are justly sought after as invaluable for the same reason. For instance, what a fund of sense there is in Grimm's memoirs. We thus get at the essence of what is contained in their more labored productions, without the affectation or formality. Argument again is the death of conversation, if carried on in a spirit of hostility. But discussion is a pleasant and profitable thing, where you advance and defend your opinions as far as you can, and admit the truth of what is objected against them with equal impartiality. In short, where you do not pretend to set up for an oracle, but freely declare what you really know about any question, or suggest what has struck you as throwing a new light upon it, and let it pass for what it is worth. This tone of conversation was well described by Dr. Johnson, when he said of some party at which he had been present the night before, We had a good talk, sir. As a general rule, there is no conversation worth anything but between friends, or those who agree in the same leading views of a subject. Nothing was ever learnt by either side in a dispute. You contradict one another, will not allow a grain of sense in what your adversary advances, are blind to whatever makes against yourself, dare not look the question fairly in the face, so that you cannot avail yourself even of your real advantages, 
insist most on what you feel to be the weakest points of your argument and get more and more absurd dogmatical and violent at every moment disputes for victory generally end to the dissatisfaction of all parties and the one recorded in gil bias breaks up just as it ought i once knew a very ingenious man that whom to take him by the way of common chit-chat or fireside gossip no one could be more entertaining or rational he would make an apt classical quotation propose an explanation of a curious passage in shakespeare's venus and adonis detect a metaphysical error in locke would infer the volatility of the french character from the chapter in stern where the count mistakes the feigned name of yorick for a proof of his being the identical imaginary character in hamlet at vous etes yorick thus confounding words with things twice over but let a difference of opinion be once hitched in and it was all over with him his only object from that time was to shut out common sense and to be proof against conviction he would argue the most ridiculous point such as that there were two original languages for hours together nay through the horologue you would not suppose it was the same person he was like an obstinate runaway horse that takes the bit in his mouth and becomes mischievous and unmanageable he had made up his mind to one thing not to admit a single particle of what anyone else said for or against him it was all the difference between a man drunk and sober sane or mad it is the same when he once gets the pen in his hand he has been trying to prove a contradiction in terms for the last ten years of his life viz that the bourbons have the same right to the throne of france that the brunswick family have to the throne of england many people think there is a want of honesty or a want of understanding in this there is neither but he will persist in an argument to the last pinch he will yield in absurdity to no man this litigious humor is bad enough but there is one character still worse that of a person who goes into a company not to contradict but to talk at you this is the greatest nuisance in civilized society such a person does not come armed to defend himself at all points but to unsettle if he can and throw a slur on all your favorite opinions if he has a notion that any one in the room is fond of poetry he immediately volunteers a contemptuous tirade against the idle jingle of verse if he suspects you have a delight in pictures he endeavors not by fair argument but by sidewind to put you out of conceit with so frivolous an art if you have a taste for music he does not think much good is to be done by this tickling of the ears if you speak in praise of a comedy he does not see the use of wit if you say you have been to a tragedy he shakes his head at this mockery of human misery and thinks it ought to be prohibited he tries to find out beforehand what it is that you take a particular pride or pleasure in that he may annoy your self-love in the tenderest point as if he were probing a wound and make you dissatisfied with yourself and your pursuits 
for several days afterwards. A person might as well make a practice of throwing out scandalous aspersions against your dearest friends or nearest relations by way of ingratiating himself into your favor. Such ill-timed impertinence is villainous and shows a pitiful ambition in the fool that uses it. The soul of conversation is sympathy. Authors should converse chiefly with authors, and their talk should be of books. When Greek meets Greek, then comes the tug-of-war. There is nothing so pedantic as pretending not to be pedantic. No man can get above his pursuits in life. It is getting above himself, which is impossible. There is a Freemasonry in all things. You can only speak to be understood. But this you cannot be, except by those who are in the secret. Hence an argument has been drawn to supersede the necessity of conversation altogether. For it has been said that there is no use in talking to people of sense, who know all you can tell them, nor to fools who will not be instructed. There is, however, the smallest encouragement to proceed when you are conscious that the more you really enter into a subject, the farther you will be from the comprehension of your hearers, and that the more proofs you give of any position, the more odd and out of the way they will think your notions. Coleridge is the only person who can talk to all sorts of people, on all sorts of subjects, without caring a farthing for their understanding of one word he says, and he talks only for the admiration and to be listened to. And accordingly, the least interruption puts him out. I firmly believe he would make just the same impression on half his audience if he purposely repeated absolute nonsense with the same voice and manner and inexhaustible flow of undulating speech. In general, wit shines only by reflection. You must take your cue from your company, must rise as they rise and sink as they fall. You must see that your good things, your knowing illusions, are not flung away like pearls in the adage. What a check it is to be asked a foolish question, to find that the first principles are not understood. You are thrown on your back immediately. The conversation is stopped like a country dance by those who do not know the figure. But when a set of adepts, of illuminati, get about a question, it is worthwhile to hear them talk. They may snarl and quarrel over it, like dogs but they pick it bare to the bone, they masticate it thoroughly. End of section 4 Recording by Kirby Bonds